please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. And we're reading from verse 25 through to verse 37. And you'll find it on page 1612, 1612 of the Church Bible. Most of you are aware that we began a new series of studies last Sunday morning entitled Pumpkins, Parables and Thanksgiving. And it seemed a good title to use in this season of year as we are moving through the fall season towards Thanksgiving. And in spending time in the parables on Sunday morning, allow us to engage with some of the most popular and most memorized of all of Jesus' teaching. And I think it could be argued that the parable of the Good Samaritan is certainly in the top two or three most loved of the parables. And so we're beginning at Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, How do do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins, gave one to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. If you have a favorite book or a movie that you enjoy going back to again and again. And it is always an encouragement and a blessing and fun to interact with. The chances are that the author or the script writer structured the script or the book in a particular manner. The story was told in a way that was imaginative, engaging. The narrative developed and flowed easily. And yet crafting a well-told story is not easy. The cat sat on the mat 
is not a good introduction to a story. The cat sat on the dog's mat. Now that's an introduction to a good story because you can imagine what's coming next. And when someone gives that as an introduction, it's raising questions in your mind, it's creating tension, and then you know that excitement, adventure, and a solution will inevitably follow. That's the structure for a well-told story. And a well-told story takes you on a journey from where you are and takes you to a point of new realization. And that's exactly what happens in the parable of the Good Samaritan. But before we get into and immerse ourselves in the parable of the Good Samaritan, let me encourage you, please, if you have your Bible, to go to the opening words of Luke's Gospel. And in those first four verses, we have a similar structure laid out for us by Luke. And in Luke's prologue, we see multiple things happening all at the same time. And he begins by writing on a personal basis, and he begins, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. And look, in beginning this wonderful, glorious gospel, In fact, it's not only the beginning of the Gospels, because Luke wrote both Luke's Gospel and also the book of Acts. And that makes Luke the largest single contributor to the New Testament. And that's quite a thought, isn't it? Because most of us, I would suspect, would say, well, the person who contributed most is clearly the Apostle Paul. But not so. Luke has written more of the New Testament than anyone else. And he begins by reminding his readers that he has carefully investigated everything from the beginning. And in fact, I have interviewed and talked to those who were eyewitnesses. And in your mind, as you read those words, you begin to say, wait a minute. What is coming? that is so absolutely spectacular and special and so compelling and engaging that you would have to interview the eyewitnesses to make sure you got it right. And that's exactly why Luke interviews the eyewitnesses. And he does so carefully and then lays it out for us. And likewise... In those first four verses, you have some of the finest New Testament Greek used anywhere in the entirety of the New Testament. 
The equivalent today would be reading the National Enquirer while standing in line at the supermarket as opposed to a quality daily newspaper. That would be the difference. And anyone reading these first four verses in the original language would finish with, Wow! I cannot wait to see what comes next. And that's exactly what happens in the parable of the Good Samaritan. When Jesus begins, there once was a man who went from Jerusalem to Jericho. He is doing what? He is creating a picture in our minds. He is drawing us in. And the parable doesn't begin with those words, in fact. There once was a man. The incident begins with questions. And it begins, notice how it begins, verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law. In other words, someone who had formal training in the Old Testament, possibly a Pharisee or a Sadducee. But he says, an expert in the law stood up. To test Jesus. Between you and I, I think that was his first mistake. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he begins with a question. And I suspect he had an ulterior motive. I think he was going out of his way to say, how can I trap Jesus at the very outset of this, of this conversation? There are within each parable primary and secondary levels of understanding and meaning, and it often leads to hidden depths. And whenever we come to this parable, it's worth remembering it starts with someone testing Jesus, seeking to catch him out, and so it begins with a series of questions. And Jesus does what he often does. He answers with a question. And he answers in the man's own terms. An expert of the law. He feeds back to him information from the law. And he answered. What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? And the man answered. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul. With all your strength. With all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. And now we find the key to unlocking the passage. But the expert in the law wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus begins to unfold the parable itself. And I think by the time you get to the parable The expert in the law realizes there is so much more going on here than he first realizes. Jesus paints the picture. The road to Jerusalem, to Jericho, was a desolate desert road. It was infamous for people being attacked and robbed. And as the narrative unfolds, notice what happens. A priest happened to be going by. Excuse me, I jumped a little. The man, of course, was stripped of his clothes, beaten, and those who attacked him went away, leaving him half dead. And then a priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man. And 
he passed on the other side. Which comes as a little bit of a surprise. And then you have that pattern repeated. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed on the other side. And the parable, remember, is told to answer a question, Who is my neighbor? I suspect that both the priest and the Levite would consider themselves neighborly. And, being a good neighbor, they would want to step up and help and make a difference and help folks in need. Because after all, their position in society, their profession was such that people held them in high regard. They were respected in their community. People would show natural deference to them. They were revered. Priest and a Levite. Levite, my goodness. And I suspect they wanted to be neighborly. But being neighborly when it's convenient, not on a desolate desert road, being neighborly when it's convenient, when it's suitable, when it's easy. It's fairly straightforward, may cost you a little inconvenience, may cost you financially. But in the middle of a desert road, that's a whole different set of circumstances. And then the story changes. And it changes with a twist. And Leon Morris, New Testament scholar, suggests this. That as you get further and further into the parable, you hear about the priest, you hear about the Levite, you may be tempted to think that the next person to pass by would be a layman. Priest did not do well. Levite did not do well. Well, let's contrast it with a layman coming to help. And you can see that as a natural reading of the parable. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, a Samaritan who was traveling on the road stopped and helped. Now, why was that important? It was important for this reason That Samaritans and Jewish folks in that age and stage of history were implacable enemies, hated one another, almost constantly in disagreement. And when an enemy steps up to make a difference, when an enemy steps forward to impact a situation, That was the last thing Jesus' original listeners would expect. And to some extent, the stark contrast here that the image gives to us is the Levite and the priest in stark contrast to the Samaritan. And it's the action of the Samaritan that condemns or puts in bad light the Levi and the priest. Now take that thought. Hold it for a second. Because that's one picture that emerges from this parable. It's the picture we often think of. It is the primary understanding 
of the parable. But often with parables, as I said earlier, there can be a primary and a secondary picture beginning to emerge. And we'll see it over the next few weeks in subsequent parables. There are often two or three movements happening simultaneously. And the other picture that begins to emerge here is this. And it's a picture on a much grander scale than we initially imagine. And it's interpreted by going way back to the beginning of the narrative. And how did the story begin? An expert in the law asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as Jesus tells the parable, the second picture to begin to emerge is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, all of your strength. That was the original proposition on which the parable was built. And why? Because I think the expert in the law realized what subsequent generations of people have understood that it is so difficult to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. And the expert in the law and we in the 21st century recognize that we do not love him with all of our heart and mind and soul. And in fact, there are times in our lives when, if we really were honest, we would say that we sin and we sin against him. Now, we don't always respond in the way we ought to in our day-to-day living. There are times when we look back on our lives that we have made poor decisions, bad choices, some of them growing out of sinful desire. And the picture of the individual, broken, bleeding, half dead, is also an image of humanity without the love and grace of God. That we've injured each other, that sin has decimated our life and left us broken and wounded and hurt, spiritually dying. And it's the great compassion and the love and grace of our Heavenly Father who surrounds us with His tender mercies and His goodness and brings healing and wholeness at His own expense. For God so loved the world that He what? Sent His one and only Son That's the second picture emerging here. And is out of being recipients of his love and grace and goodness, is out of being made whole and having transformed lives and being energized and equipped by the indwelling of his spirit. That's how we then show compassion to others. That's the point of the parable. This parable is not pull up your socks. It's not an obligation to live a better, moral, more compassionate life. It can have that meaning, but it's not its primary meaning. 
His primary purpose and meaning is this. Am I, as a recipient of his love and grace and goodness, an individual who has experienced the transforming touch of God, am I, in turn, showing compassion to those in need? Not holding on to, well, who is my neighbor, who is not my neighbor? Am I only a neighbor to people of the same color? Am I only a neighbor to people who speak the same language? Am I only a neighbor to those who have similar educational background and status in life? Of course, it's nonsense to think along those lines. We're a neighbor to anyone in need. And please hear this. And how often have we said it on Sunday morning that we have a younger generation coming up in their 30s and 40s who are looking at Christianity in a 21st century cultural context and they think with their eyes. They're asking, is this a compassionate people? Are these people who will go the extra mile to make a difference? Are these a people who not only talk a good game, but live a good game, who prayerfully, carefully, with compassion, seek to serve a community and to transform the spiritual heart of a city? Is that who these people are? They have no interest in an expert in the law or a Pharisee, or Sadducee, or Levi, or priest. They're interested in seeing a faith that is authentic and credible and works out day by day by day. Imagine in your mind, and let's contemporize it, if I may, the Pharisee or Sadducee who goes home and says to a spouse, when I was driving home this evening, I thought I saw a body at the side of the road. And when I looked in my rear view mirror, I think it was right. Oh, I felt so bad for that person. My heart went out to them. And the spouse says, did you do anything? Well, I didn't really want to become involved, and I'm sure the person's dead. There wasn't really much I could do, quite honestly. Someone else, I'm sure I saw cars, my rearview mirror, slowing down. They, they can deal with it. And incidentally, we've got Jennifer and Tom and their family coming over tonight. We're having barbecue, of course. I didn't want to spoil the evening by coming late, covered in dirt and blood and all of it. It's, I just felt so bad. As the recipients of the love and grace of God, He calls us to be neighborly, whatever the circumstances. He calls us to make a difference whenever we can. This morning, you heard me mention in the announcements that we are in the midst of our Christmas shoebox appeal for children, which we have done annually for certainly more than a decade now. Our Hollis Angel Tree Project is underway. And as Christian people, our response is to step up, 
make a difference. Not always when it's convenient, not always when it's comfortable, but to make a difference where we can. This time last year, Beth Simmons, who has been heading up the work at Hollis Academy, working with children who live in poverty for 10 years, South Carolina School Boards Association presented First Presbyterian and Beth with an award to say we deeply appreciate the work you do week after week after week after week. In fact, the chairman in that evening as he presented the award said this, it will have an eternal impact. That's real ministry. That's real compassion. That's going the extra mile. And we know that children in Hollis this year will give thanks for who you are and they will remember that the rest of their days, as will their parents. Children all over the world who receive shoeboxes given in the name of Jesus with his compassion. And we do so because we know what it means to be the recipients of his grace. We don't do so somehow trying to earn our way into heaven. If we're good boys and girls, if we're good moms and dads, that's not the primary purpose of the parable. The primary purpose is, as my people, loved by me, treasured by me, nurtured and nourished by me, now go and do likewise. That's the purpose of the parable. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you. For this parable this morning and the challenge it brings to us. And the challenge it brings to us in this area of compassion. Making a difference. Father, enable us as we move into this Thanksgiving season to actively, in a concrete manner, in a credible, authentic way, express our thankfulness to you for the immensity and the intensity of your work. Father, as we move towards this Christmas season in six weeks or so, allow us please amidst the celebrations to give thanks for your love for us. Bless us please we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.